Oh, hey, I'm glad you're here. Do you ever find yourself thinking about how the Fat Boys released Are You Ready for Freddy in 1988 as the theme for Nightmare on Elm Street 4 The Dream Master, and Will Smith, aka The Fresh Prince, released Nightmare on My Street that same year and it wasn't tied to anything? He just put out his own Nightmare on Elm Street theme on his second album, not authorized or part of any soundtrack. Then, in only two years, he stars in his own sitcom with a theme he wrote and then does that on the big screen in Men in Black, Wild Wild West, and Men in Black 2. Now, if that isn't some vision board the secret situation, I don't know what is. So the next time someone says something like, oh, you're doing a vision board, or that's like Manifest Destiny, you say, nay, good sir, that's like a nightmare on my street. A reference that in this day and age, parents would understand. Now, we've had a few musician episodes on VHS. Tough Turf, who's responsible for our theme. You can find their music online at American Scream Records. Together, we tackled the heavy metal horror... Black Roses. Also, Chris Connolly of Ministry, Pig Face, Revolting Cox, Damage Manual, Feeny Tribe joined us to talk about the vampire musical Suck. This episode, we're joined by a jazz musician to discuss a wonderful surprise of a film, so let's get right to it. The film is Stormy Monday, the guest is a jazz musician, and this is VH Us. Hello and welcome to VHS, the podcast where each episode is about a film and the guest has the professional experience portrayed in the film. I'm your host, Dirk Marshall, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Marshall. How are you? I'm good, Dirk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being in our home. Yep, here I am. (laughs) People can find you on Instagram and Twitter at Spicy Marshall, and you're soon to be on Kitsch, which for people who don't know, it's the Twitch platform, but for chefs and cooking, meaning you're joining the ranks of Ruth Reichel, Amanda Freitag, and Marcus Samuelson. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm pretty excited about it. I don't know how I got on in there, but I'm going to go live on Wednesday. That's so cool. And I go right before Ruth Reichel. It's like real crazy. Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. So anybody wants to join, you can go on. It's really cool because you can interact directly with the people that are cooking. Right. So instead of where we would normally do it on Instagram and people can type in, you're actually on the screen and you can just ask a question. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. It's just a live discussion. So I'm pretty excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. And people would find you by your name, I'm guessing? Yep. Sarah Marshall. Okay. As always, I encourage you to find us on Instagram and Twitter, VHS underscore podcast. Ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated, I'm told. Our guest for this episode is Anthony King. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. That was our longest pre-guest intro. <laughs> now, you're here as a jazz man. How many years did you do the jazz? I did the jazz for, let's see, I was 16. Well, professionally, started playing in clubs when I was 16 and played until, oh, I'd say till I was 30 and then burned out of the hustle, as they say. Yeah, I can imagine as a musician, there's a lot that goes into it other than just performing. There's everything that leads up to it. And what was your gateway into jazz? Uh, When I was in eighth grade, I was a percussionist and our eighth grade band director said, we need a bass player for the jazz band. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And so they gave me a bass and I went home over the summer and learned it and came back the following year and had accumulated a small stack of records and CDs and did 
what I could study wise as a 12, 13 year old and listened all summer long, picked up the basics of the bass and then started from there. And then into high school, I became really good friends. He wasn't really a teacher, but my band director basically became a, one of my best friends. Mm. And by the time I was a junior, I was playing in clubs with him professionally playing till 2 a.m. on <laughs> Friday nights, Saturday nights, every weekend, two nights a week playing at these bars. And I'm just this kid. I'm guessing smoky bars, too. This is a time where people could smoke. <laughs> yes. So I remember there's this club. It's not around anymore. It's called Bar 415. I've got some real scary, very stormy Monday type of stories about that club. But we would play on the second level, which is where the office was. And there's this balcony. And so the band would be up there. The crowd would be below. Of course, nobody's listening. Everyone's just drinking and smoking. <laughs> right. But of course, the smoke rises. Yeah. And a lot of clubs would put in, do you remember, smoke eaters? Yeah. The vents that would suck up the cigarette smoke. This place didn't have smoke eaters. So all the smoke would go up there and just sit in the balcony. And so this was how I learned how to memorize all of the classic standards because I couldn't see my eyes would burn so bad and I'd start crying. I'd have to play with my eyes squeezed so shut, tightly shut. But yeah, smoky is an understanding. Mean, it was like being in the middle of a forest fire. It was horrible. Yeah. Sarah, did you have a similar situation? Because you worked in a jazz club. Yeah, I worked in a jazz bar in Portland called Jimmy Max. It's not around anymore, but I was also underage when I worked there. I got hired to be first the dishwasher. I just happened to be walking by. I was actually 19. They hired me as the dishwasher and I was really bad at it. I was a terrible dishwasher. So then they made me a bar back and host, but they kind of dealt with the smoke problem in that the bar where they played music was upstairs and that's where all the live music was and people couldn't smoke up there because it was also a restaurant. And then uh -huh. there was a bar in the basement and that's where people were allowed to smoke. And so it didn't really affect the jazz performance because it was going on down there. So all the musicians would go down there and smoke before their sets or in between sets and then come up. And, and who was the big guy that was there all the time? Mel Brown played there every Thursday. So that's the the nights I got hired to work because it was their busiest nights. And then I stayed on for a few years and worked a lot more shows <laughs> than just Thursday night. But that's how I got into the jazz world. And Anthony, you are here today as a jazzman, but you are also <laughs> a podcaster. You have a podcast called Cult Movies Podcast. Could you break down for our listeners what that is? It is a tribute to author and critic and historian Danny Perry. Back in the early 80s, he wrote three books called Cult Movies, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Of course, he's written several other books since, but my show is just dedicated to him and his writing. And so each episode, I have a guest come on, they pick a movie from one of the books, and then we just talk about that movie and then offer up some pairing recommendations. But it's all about a love for this man who I've been lucky enough to speak with and text back and forth with. He's a wonderful gentleman, but his writing has meant so much to a lot of the writers and the people that appear on your Blu-ray supplements mm -hmm. now. He's meant so much to those people. And so I was like, you know what? I want to honor this guy in some way. So that's what the podcast is about. We just like to talk about movies that some are actually cult movies and some are not cult movies anymore, but you know, it's fun to talk about movies. <laughs> it's true. It is. That is the cult movies podcast. I really enjoy it. One of my favorite episodes of a podcast was recently with Bill Ackerman on there from supporting characters. I actually listened to it two times. 
back to back. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he, yeah, him and Heather, that was unfortunate because I did not like that movie, the Brian De Palma greetings. Right. Which that's the great thing about having the guest pick the movie because I don't love all the movies or like sure. all the movies in these books. And so hopefully the guest does. So it's not like it's a hate fest right. the whole time. So the hate just comes from me on right. that episode. <laughs> yes, it's good. I love it. Now, before we get to the business at hand, we must answer the big question. This is a listener submitted question from Twitter or Instagram. Again, if you want to submit one, VHUS underscore podcast. And I have them here in my clam box. So I'm just going to shake up my clam box, which is really just a jewel case or a clamshell is what they were called. It's the plastic container you put a VHS tape in. Did you just have that lying around, Dirk? (laughs) It had a Reuben and Ed in it, actually. <laughs> I had to take Reuben and Ed out of this so that we could... How dare you? What I a know. perfect way to get your I questions know. out. Yeah, I thought so. So let's see what this one is. This comes from Call Me Luke on Twitter. It's favorite opening credit scene. Any favorite, I'll say, because we are on the spot here, so it doesn't have to be your favorite. Oh, my goodness. Favorite opening credit scene. I will throw one out there while you're thinking... Because I just watched Wetlands from 2013 for an episode that just aired. And in that credit sequence, you're spinning around a microscopic viewing of the culture on top of a toilet seat. And it's very strange and disturbing. And you're seeing germs (laughs) and stuff. But you're not ready for it when the movie goes. So I love that. Also uh, did an episode with Patrick Bromley on the Cronenberg film Naked Lunch. And I love that credit sequence. Again, more jazz, I think, in that, too. Sure. Just because we recently watched it for F This Movie Fest, speaking of Patrick, yeah, I really like the opening sequence of The Rock, you know, because oh. it's the military men preparing for their siege and then Ed Harris going to his dead wife's graveside. And it's really exciting. It's very Michael Bay, right. of course. So just off the top of my head, since we just recently yeah. watched it. Yeah, it's a good one. That's great. Sarah, do you have any opening credit sequences that you can even think of? I think it's Blue Velvet. Is that the one that starts out inside of the ear? The ear and the lawn. And then it's an ear in the lawn. Yeah. 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 That one always sticks with me because it's a little bit of a wild ride. Yeah. I hear you on that one. (laughs) Good one. Now, the film that brings us together is Stormy Monday from 1988. Anthony, was this a first time watch for you? First time watch. I've never even heard of it until uh, you and I were talking online. So I love that you brought it to my attention because spoilers, I love, yes! love, love this movie. Oh, oh, that's so great. I was excited when we came to this idea for this episode. I also never heard this movie. I didn't know it existed. Sarah found it in Seattle in a used DVD Blu-ray bookstore situation. And I got it home, watched it. She has no memory of being in the room, but she was in the room. And we'll get to the scene where I stood up from the couch and just shouted, are you seeing this? It's incredible. Well, and I always like to do that for Dirk when I go somewhere and it can be anywhere where they sell movies or books. And I might not find anything, but I'll just see something and I'll be like, well, this sounds weird and interesting. And I think the first thing that I saw on this one was Sting was in it. And I was like, I don't know, it seems kind of fun and weird. And Dirk could have a jazz musician on. And so I just take pictures and then send it to him. So I'm always sometimes you're like oh no (laughs) (laughs) but with this one you're like oh yeah get that one and so it's very exciting when it turns out yeah yeah 
for sure. At the time of this recording, Arrow has a gorgeous Blu-ray out. It's also on Tubi, Amazon Prime, but of course I'd be remiss to not say, please support your local video store like Movie Madness right here in Portland, Oregon. The synopsis is a crooked American businessman tries to push the shady influential owner of a nightclub in Newcastle, England to sell him the club. The club's new employee and the American's ex-lover fall in love and inadvertently stir the pot. Stir in the pot, baby. Yeah. I don't think you needed the last sentence. No. But, okay. Oh, that's part of the actual synopsis? Yeah. Stir the pot? Stir oh the pot. God. Stir the pot. I mean, they could have went with some jazz terminology or something, but the stir the pot? I don't... Or create a storm, yes. perhaps? Some... There you go. Yeah, I like it. that. The film's described as a neo-noir romance thriller, which I think is very fun. Yeah. Our director is Mike Figgis. Stormy Monday, Internal Affairs, Leaving Las Vegas, Time Code, and most recently a documentary on the Rolling Stone guitarist entitled Somebody Up There Likes Me, which I haven't seen, but I'm interested mm -hmm. in. He wrote it, directed it, and wrote all of the music. The only other director doing so at this time was John Carpenter, which I think is pretty interesting. Wow, yeah. Mike Figgis played guitar in a band called The Gas Board with a guy named Brian Ferry, who shortly after this moved on and started Roxy Music. Whoa. Love Roxy Music. <laughs> yeah, same. A cinematographer, Roger Deakins. I mean, he's a complete master. Oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. Oh, it's incredible. Shorts, music videos led by New Order and Herbie Hancock, to yeah. name a few. Then he does Sid and Nancy, Barton Fink, a buttload of Coen Brothers films. I think Official is term, <laughs> buttload. <laughs> buttload of Coen <laughs> yes. Brothers films, including Fargo. And then he did A Beautiful Mind. There's like 80 credits and it's one of those names that every time it shows up you're just like we're in good hands the lighting the camera work it's gonna be so good well that's yes. what i kept saying out loud too it was like yeah. oh, whoa whoa and then i hear you be like that was so beautiful yeah well and roger <laughs> ebert at the time really liked this movie and part of what he's he wrote in his very strange review of it, it was about the wet concrete and the light bouncing off the puddles and all this. It's just, it's Roger Deakins. It's amazing. Our editor is David Martin, who also did Sid and Nancy. So these guys all started in the same region and then branched out. I love to see that. For sure. They got the jobs because they were there at yeah. that point and grew from, from that point. He also did The Steel and I Can't Think Straight. Our stars, we got Melanie Griffith. She had done Roar, Body Double, and Something Wild, which got her this role. That movie directed by Jonathan Demme. Originally Originally, this film was up and running almost with Kim Cattrall in the lead role. And, in Stormy Monday? Uh, yeah. And then hmm. funding fell through. And then when Melanie was hot, she got attached to the film and it picked up again. Sarah, you had something you wanted to add about Kim Cattrall? I, I do, because it fits with this movie. So that if everybody could YouTube right now, yeah. <laughs> you can look up Kim Cattrall scatting, yep. I think is how you find it. And you can see her, I think, with her husband. And she's just doing this like jazz scat. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So um, if if everybody could find that or if we could even just plug it in. Sure. It's yeah. my, one of my favorite things to watch if I'm ever having a bad day. Tommy Lee Jones is in this film. He'd done Rolling Thunder, Black Moon Rising, The Fugitive. Originally, this cast was going to include Christopher Walken in this role, but Mike met with Christopher Walken and was terrified of him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be terrified of somebody that you're going to have to direct. Yeah. Which no, yeah. they ended up with Tommy Lee, which he had never met. And he ended up being terrified of him as well for different I reasons. I mean, how can you not? Uh, that's so funny that he was scared of, he's yes. like, oh, I'm going to pass on this guy because I'm scared of him. We're going to go with Tommy Lee Jones instead. <laughs> yeah. Who, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the meme, but there, yeah. it's like, 
three pictures of Tommy Lee Jones, like, you know, with his famous, like old man grumpy face. And the caption is like, Tommy Lee Jones always looks like his son just told him he wants to go to juggling school. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send it to you guys. So funny. Oh my God. I I mean, I love, I absolutely adore Tommy Lee Jones, but Mm -hmm. he's so intimidating. Yeah. And the stories that Mike shares about his interactions are pure gold. So if you want to hear those in their entirety, please buy the Blu-ray from Arrow because it's a fantastic commentary. Then we have Sean Bean. We know him from Dying in Most Things, Lord of the Rings, Black Death, Tina Turner's <laughs> GoldenEye video. He's in it. I don't know if he dies in that one. I'd have to rewatch Tina Turner's GoldenEye video. <laughs> Originally, this was Tim Roth, but Melanie Griffith's people, once she was attached, said that Tim Roth wasn't hot enough, so they got oh. Sean Bean. <laughs> Poor Tim well, Roth. I, 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 I mean, come on, Sean Bean in this movie, yeah. when he first shows up on screen, I was like, <gasps> yeah. oh, oh my. <laughs> I didn't know I felt this way towards Sean Bean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope we see a lot of his undercarriage in oh, this we movie. Do. We get to. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, of course we're going to see Melanie Griffith nude in this. Uh, nope, we're yeah. wrong person. Equal opportunity. Sting <laughs> is in this. He's in Dune. Uh, the Bride, and played Zarm on Captain Planet. So I just want to plug those <laughs> mm. sting joints. Good job, Sting. Yeah. This was a big deal when the movie was being filmed in Newcastle. It was a return home for Sting, who had grown up in that region. He's speaking in his actual accent in this movie. I think it's the mm. only role where he's not doing something. Trying to hide it. <laughs> yeah, or doing some different region. He yeah. swears in Geordie, which is a dialect from the region in the film. So the people that were in and around this, that meant a lot to be reflected in cinema at the time. So, That's cool. That's yeah. Awesome. It was really great. So let's press play on Stormy Monday. Uh, we start at a gas station and it feels like handheld and then boom, Melanie Sting and Tommy Lee. This movie does not waste time. It's just like gets right in there. We see neon signs. Those were all added to Newcastle. This was a rundown part when they were originally going to shoot there. So all the businesses were shuttered and they put all these giant, crazy Coca-Cola neon signs so this was on location? Yeah, it's all shot on I, location. I could have sworn, and I'm, we'll get there, but it, it looks like just a huge soundstage yes. with little sections. Gosh, it's so beautiful. It's really gorgeous. We see a miniature of a city, like a tiny model that's not made to look real. And one of the things I love that he does in this film is there's so much cross-cutting where it's showing just different images and things taking place at like the same time with overlap of audio. And I guess I just really, my brain like lights up with this sort of thing. It likes that it's thinking about multiple things at once in the film. He comes from an art school background. So this abstract way of putting something together was like supernatural for him. Mm. It also feels like jazz to me. The idea of cross-cutting and all these multiple things. So I want to ask you about when I see jazz musicians playing. Now, I'm not a musician by any means. So one person playing music, as long as it's not an acoustic guitar, I'm like, how do they do that? But when you have multiple people and they're doing solos and all these different things, is it all written? Did you do improvisation? I don't even know what my question is. That's how jazz I am. <laughs> that's, a, that's how jazz you... Well, it all starts with the lead sheet. And so you have just your sheet music with the melody on it, mm. for the most part, for any standard gig. And so like for the rhythm section, which is piano, bass, drums, guitar, vibraphone, if you're lucky enough to get one. Oh, I better be. I was uh, in that first band that I played with my band director there was a vibraphonist and it was great I don't even know what that is oh it's long silver bells basically Hmm. and if you heard it I'd be like that's the vibraphone and you'd be like oh that's the vibraphone anyway 
And so you have your lead sheet and you play the head. That's what we call the melody. You play the head. And then from then on, you just improvise. And it's all about eye contact. It's real crucial that the bass player and the drummer really lock in and that you're in step with each other. And you, as a bass player, I'm locked in with the drummer and I'm listening to who's ever blown lead. And sometimes you're echoing what they're doing. Sometimes just really dig in and grind down and hold all the floor. And, and that's if you're lucky to be able to play in a club that actually wants the music, because at least from where I am from, most of the time, they just like saying, we have bands here, but then they say, shh, too quiet. <laughs> right. You need to play slower. You need to play whatever. But it starts with that lead sheet and then who knows where it'll go. And I used to play in this improvisational band, which I'm sure we're going to get there, the Krakow Jazz yes. Ensemble. It was just like that, where it was improvisational completely. And a lot of times one person would start playing and then everybody just comes in and goes along with whatever they're doing and sometimes it can sound like a real mess, but other times this band in the movie, it's really amazing. And you're like, oh my God, they're just making this up on the spot. Yeah. I can't believe it. I don't even know if that answers. That any was perfect. Sort of yes. No, that was great. Yeah. One of my first jobs after the video store was an independent record store. And I have to say that I started to have a real disdain for the jazz fans because this is pre-internet. No one had cell phone. I mean, people still had pagers, I think. So people would come in and they'd ask for something and any other genre, you'd be like, yeah, it's right over here. But with jazz, they'd want a specific recording where this person's playing a specific instrument where they recorded this one song. And I would see these guys, always guys, and they would come. I was like, oh, no. And then I'd have to go over and get this giant book. And I'd flip through the tiny text to find this thing and then walk over to the shelf. It was jazz. Is, it's deep. It's serious. serious it is. It's a very deep book. That's yes, true. Yes. We get introduced to Sean Bean. There's lots of awesome mirror shots and things where I think just Roger's just having the best time. <laughs> I love the giant smokestack that's just billowing flames that we get to see. It's almost like Lynchian in parts in this where it's just totally. like so, but it's not dark. No, it's like moody. Yes. I mean, you feel what it feels like to be in the town. Yeah. Which is the thing that Eber, I think, really liked was the mood of the film. Mm -hmm. That it's not like a tone poem because there is a plot. But even Mike was like, I did some weird stuff just so I could have this American and this British person go back and forth. Then we're in a mall and there's a pianist playing jazz. Did you ever play in malls at all? No, because it was always just the piano. We have a Von Maar here and there's a piano in there. And so every time we'd go there, I'd always know whoever was playing. <laughs> and they always said that was a cool gig because nobody ever cared what you were playing. So you'd go in there and somebody would be playing classical music, but then sometimes somebody playing Stevie Wonder or Steely Dan. Right. And then some other time somebody's playing something super hip and out and you're like, I know we're supposed to be shopping for clothes, but I'm going to sit down and watch this person because it's killer. So I never got the chance. No. That's the interesting thing about jazz musicians is that they fit into this different category because they can transfer over into all these different realms. Mm -hmm. Like they can be playing in a cocktail bar to playing in a fancy restaurant to being in the Nordstrom or the mall food court or the yeah. airport, or they could just be session musicians. They can bounce to all these different places, which I think doesn't happen in every genre of music. Jazz guys can read music too. And so mm -hmm. that's huge. So a lot of the jazz guys here in town also 
play for the touring Broadway shows that come in or they'll play in the pit for the Omaha Community Playhouse because we can all read music. We are in demand. Of course, we're the guys that made the least amount of money yet were some of the best musicians in town. I'm not speaking for me, but some of the guys I played with were the most incredible. But you have your typical cover band playing at a bar who's raking in way more money than we ever did. So that's the ironic thing. Yeah. Speaking of people playing in bands, Dean Cameron, who was the star of Ski School and was in summer school as well, he plays bass in a band that I think does covers. And on his Instagram, he posts live videos. And I was watching just last night and he's like, just jamming on the bass. And it's like, what a treat that you get to see this. (laughs) Holy. I love it. It's really fun. Like messaging while he's on there. And he's like, Dirk, we'll talk later. And I was like, okay, sorry. I'm busy jamming. <laughs> it's like I'm playing a Green Day right now. <laughs> Melanie gets an outfit while Sean Bean and some punk rockers watch a Native American dance ceremony. This is Mike mashing cultures. And apparently that's where Newcastle was at the time. There was this chain of cultures oh. happening. And he's exploring that by introducing later American Week and all this kind of stuff that's not real. Melanie runs into Sean. I wrote off of electronic stairs because apparently I forgot what an S Escalators called? Ah. No, it's electronic stairs. (laughs) It's on electronic stairs. Sean enters a gym called Jim's Gym. I love that. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we talk about them running into each other? Yeah. Yeah. I had a note. We've all bumped into someone, right? Just like accidentally, right? I don't know who exactly initiated this one here. But it's a full-on tackle. Yes. Arms spread, <laughs> limbs flailing, bags yeah. out. They just body slam each other. Yeah. And I was like, what? I knew nothing about this movie. So I was like, okay, that's intentional because she's like a spy or an undercover cop or something. Football player. <laughs> or a football. Yeah, exactly. But no, that's just they ran into each other. and <laughs> With such force, I blame the electronic stairs. <laughs> When we just went to the airport, I ran over this man's shoe with our wagon that we pull our child around in so that we can just drag her everywhere quickly. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I did it, I was like, oh, man, that's who I'm going to sit by on the airplane. (laughs) And it was. We were at the other side of the airport. And then I run over his shoe so hard. And it looked like I did it on purpose, which, of course, I didn't. But he was like, like so mad at me. And then he was at our same gate. There's a hundred gates at our same gate. And I was like, oh, he's going to sit right next to us. Oh, he's going to sit right next to us. And then he was right behind us. Yeah. (laughs) So then the whole flight, I'm like, I really didn't mean to. Yeah, you should have just tackled him. I should have tackled him. It would have been better. Because then it maybe would have made him laugh. (laughs) (laughs) So there's Jim's Jim, and the owner is Sting. Very interesting. Sean gets the brush off, but he knows some jazz facts. And now we don't really know how Sting got his start in jazz. And we sort of know yours, but was jazz where you started with a musical instrument? Did you grow up with music in your home? Yeah, music in the home, but it wasn't jazz. I started playing piano. I took piano lessons, started in second grade or third grade. And then in fifth grade, you're allowed to pick an instrument. So I picked percussion. I did that until playing bass. And then from then on, it was bass. I don't know anyone who started in jazz. At least I don't. I'm sure there are the great musicians start in jazz. But around here, you just start in your orchestral play, Mary Had a Little Lamb type of thing. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Sting gets a call that the band can't come because they're held at customs. It's the Krakow band that we talked about earlier, which was a real band. They were called the People Band. Did you know of them before seeing this movie? Never heard of them. Okay. Okay. Well, they're an avant-garde jazz ensemble, and Mike would play with them. 
back in the day. So he put a lot of people that he knew in this film from this region, which I think is pretty awesome. They have American Week, like I mentioned, which is not a real thing. It was just a way so that Mike could get done what he needed to get done in this movie. And I love it. I love the idea of American Week. I mean, how awful does America Week sound? (laughs) Well, now it sounds terrible. Now it just makes me squeeze my butt cheeks together. Every time they're like, more flags. And I'm like, no, 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 no more flags. No more flags. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Tommy Lee's like, we want a picture of our president and your prime minister. And and here he brings in pictures of Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And you're just like, oh, no, come on. Mr. Cosmo, this is Peter Reed. Peter's responsible for the overall planning. How do you do, Peter? Peter. Looks fantastic. Looks wonderful. Do you need more flags? Need a lot more flags. More stars, more stripes. Okay? Now, on this wall right here, what do you say we put a large photograph of the President of the United States? Man. And over here, perhaps another one of your own Prime Minister. Yeah. That's a great idea. Good man, do it. In that scene, now we're way off. (laughs) When they bring the pictures in and all that stuff and Tommy Lee's there, she tried to talk to him all day and he just did not talk to her. And then he stormed off set when they started playing the Star Spangled Banner because he said that every donkey fart they were playing is an insult to America. And then he almost walked off again because when they were bringing out the American flags, they had them on the ground while they were putting them up on the walls. And he's like, that's unpatriotic. And just like... What an insufferable person. This. If you wonder why he plays these characters so well, I think it's a little close to home. Part of it's real. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Rolling Thunder, that's him probably. Yeah. Listen, I love Tommy Lee Jones oh, regardless. It's but... great performances, but yeah. So enter Tommy Lee Jones. He's our villain. Every choice he makes I think is wonderful. Even the director who had a very difficult time with him was like, I mean, he's so good. He says it over and over in even the commentary for the film. I love the fluid camera work in these scenes Mm. and all the jazz noodling. It's just, ah, the people don't even need to be talking. In fact, some of the times I can't hear what they're saying. And I just, maybe that's our home system, but it's just like, I don't even need it. I just, I hear somebody wailing on something. I think you're just supposed to get the feeling of what they're talking about. I don't think you're necessarily supposed to hear what they're saying all of the time, because I think the music is supposed to carry the dialogue for you. Yeah, that's I think that's right. You guys were talking about earlier, the mood. Fagus was going for the mood, for a mood. And it's like, you watch all three of these leads, four of these leads, and they're all brooding throughout the entire movie. And other than when the Krakow Jazz Ensemble is playing, the music and the lighting and Deacon's Mm -hmm. camera, Deacon's work is just absolutely gorgeous. Everything is based off of Figgis's score. Mm -hmm. This brooding, super moody score. And it's, I know he probably didn't start score first because that's a horrible way to make a movie, (laughs) but- it's almost like he did. I think you're exactly right, Sarah. Everything is because of the music. And it's so beautiful because you don't see that Mm-mm. almost ever. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Tommy Lee smokes a cigar. He chose very expensive Havanas against the budget of the film. And we'll get to when that was a problem uh, towards the end of the podcast. Sean Bean cleans up a nasty vomit. Bathroom bars are always gross is my note there. So true. They're the worst. Melanie heads to her day job at the bar Ouija's, which is a famous photographer. And so they actually got photos by Ouija in the film, which is pretty cool. Two strange men order clam chowder and whiskey, and they're quite rude to Melanie Griffith. These guys are like the henchmen. We'll see them later. Clam chowder. Is it hot? It can be. There's a plenty. I can give you a double portion. Do it. Would you like anything on the side? A couple of large whiskies, ice, no water. 
and bring them straight away. Anything else? Yes. Sit on my face. <laughs> One of them is James Cosmo, who was in Highlander, Troy, Braveheart. Is that what you're going to add? No, I was going to say when I used to drink, it was always a tall glass of whiskey, never on the rocks, never water, and tepid clam chowder. It's a great combination. <laughs> I was like, for a second, I was like, could be an Omaha thing. I, I don't know the region. Well, you, you know how fresh our seafood is right. here in the middle uh, of the country. Known for the clams, yes. I was going to say that I love that scene where she tells him not to get the clam chowder. Oh, yeah. And that is that anytime you go to a diner and someone tells you not to get something, you have to listen to yeah. them. There yeah. is a reason. You'll why have organ failure. You if you <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, when she tells him not to get it and the next people order it and then you're just giggling because you're like, oh, they're going to eat the really bad food. Good. Because yeah. they're mean. <laughs> He's going to get diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> so they get the clam chowder and put hot sauce in it. And we learn that there's going to be a hit. Cut to Sean watching more jazz at the club. I love all the shots of the musicians in the film. Finney's at the precinct club and you need to have a suit to get in. Sean heads out on the street and we see kids playing basketball and there's no hoop because kids don't play basketball there. <laughs> well, that was the first time I, cause they're all in jeans and white shirts, right? Very American looking, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. But that's when I was like, this has gotta be on some gigantic soundstage yeah. because he walks by a car dealership that almost is sort of like, what's that painting? Nighthawks? Yeah. Nighthawks Diner. It sort of looked like that. And it was so American, but it looked like each of these shots was so perfectly staged that it looked like this has to be yeah. on a stage, but it's not. It's not. Another great thing on the Arrow Blu-ray is there's a film historian. I don't have his name here, but he's from that area and he's standing in the locations, how they look now. It's really, really great. It's oh, you just wow. get a whole another appreciation because they're still standing. And a lot of them are clubs now. They weren't then. They were nothing. But oh, that's now cool. Now they've become places. Like One of the predicted it. Yeah, it's really interesting. The bartender lists off all the malts. I, I love this. It's like the fastest listing of every type of malt I've ever heard. Hi, yeah. Uh, what can I get you? Uh, what malts do you have? Uh, we got Altmore, Cardew, Kleinlish, Glen S, Glen Elgin, Glen Levin, Glen Royal, Lagavulin, Linkwood, Lochnagar, Oban, Strathconan, and Talisker. Glen <laughs> Levin. Two? Yep. With ice? No, thank you. On the day of the shoot, Melanie had a huge meltdown and wanted to go home. And the director, Mike, had to go to her and be like, we have to shoot this. We are using money. It's going to run out of time. She called him a choice name when she didn't say what it was. <laughs> and then she walked into the scene and looked very upset. And the second they said action, she just came alive and did the scene. And it's one of those things that you realize what these people have to do, much like the jazz musicians there, you lock eyes and you hit this thing and you have to do, you go off and you're performing with another person. So you have to stay in sync and do all this stuff for actors to have that kind of thing, like where they're just done and they want to leave. 
leave, but then have to turn it on for a moment, I just think is really, really incredible. So I just wanted to mention that. They bond over whiskey and dance to 50s music. This movie has jazz, but it also has blues and other things going on. It's yeah, they walk, which is fine because they're sitting at the bar at first and, and it's Thrill is Gone by B.B. King, right? right. It's playing over the speakers. And that's fine. It kind of mirrors it. But then the next tune, it starts going off. And I'm like, whoa, this is the jazz movie. Right. What are we doing <laughs> yeah. here? Like even Figgis's score is very jazzy sounding, right? Yeah. But in this bar, it's like, whoa. Oh, okay. What are we doing here? Because I'm losing. Right. I'm losing it here, to put it mildly. I'm losing it. Uh, <laughs> the but, thrill is gone. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, uh, we bring it back up. Thank goodness. Yes. Sting is in a car touching a woman's breasts, and Sean walks in and he's like, "Hey, let's chat," which means he's terrible at reading a room. Uh, <laughs> Sting says it's a matter of time, so come around in the morning. The ship in the background is still there, and it's now a club called Tuxedo Junction. Mm. For anyone, anyone that wants to go clubbing there. Boom, we get Sean Bean's buns. That's right, this movie has Sean Bean's butt. Mm-hmm. I almost missed it. So you, I rewound you it. Dry. I still have to rewind it and show you his beans. There's a scene where it's just his testicles in mm-hmm. a bathtub. Yep. <laughs> Waterlogged balls. Yeah, I don't want you to miss that part. Waterlogged balls was my high school jazz band that I was in. We were free jazz, kind of more like Zorn, if you would. or Crack out jazz ensemble, eat your heart out. Yeah. <laughs> Introducing waterlogged balls. <laughs> great, great t-shirts. Yeah, that can be made. <laughs> Finally, some merch for the podcast. This is only thirty minutes into the movie, and we have all the plot points moving. So all things have to do now is kind of dance around to a conclusion. He wrote this film without knowing three act structures of films, and so this film does kind of have a three act structure, which he claims is a complete mistake. <laughs> What a happy accident. Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I, I was watching on Tubi, and I hit pause, and I was like, where are we at time-wise? Because nothing's really happened, but yeah. it seems like time is flying by. I'm not losing interest at all. I was like, oh my gosh, it's only half an hour. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> it's crazy. Okay. It's really cool. Back at the gym, Sting is up to something. And at the big event, Alison Stedman, who's an extremely accomplished British actor from TV shows, as well as a 1988 film, so same year, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, everyone's favorite Baron Munchausen film. She speaks like Thatcher. Mike asked her to do this, to talk just like the Prime Minister. Uh, Uh Now the Polish band starts playing the American song, and as I already told my donkey fart story, so we'll move on to the next. (laughs) No, but that, because, you know, we are where we are in America at this point, and they started playing, and I was just like, yes, yes. And I was like (laughs) waiting for Tommy Lee to be like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. And uh, it's, oh, it's, it's wonderful. Love it. it. It's really good. It's my favorite version of that song by far. Uh, (laughs) In Sting's office, the picture is cut and it bleeds and then is burned by two thugs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I loved that scene because in the nineties, I did a lot of weird artwork and it reminded me of a million paintings I made. Like they always involved broken glass and fake blood and burning stuff. Yeah. But how did it do that? I think that why did it do that? I think that guy who was Mike Figgis's friend from Experimental Theater, that's his role in the two baddies. He's the weird guy. Yeah. So he cuts the picture with one of those knives. He's like, okay, so you're gonna break his arm, but my thing is I have that knife from horror movies that has a tube of fake blood in it, and it's gonna illustrate that we're gonna kill and burn his family too. So I will set it on fire, but I'm also gonna need this special effects knife. And they're yeah. like, All right. But first I have to shatter the glass. I'm and gonna then have I'm to gonna punch cut it. it with my magic knife. Yeah. 
I think that's what was happening. In my mind, anyway. That's the dialogue that took place. And I love how Sting is just sitting there, very Sting-like. So bummed. He's just, I understand this is not a video podcast, but he's just like, and? Yeah. Just waiting, because what happens next? You're like, thank God. Because... As much as a brooding, maybe jerky club owner as Sting is, he's not a bad guy in this movie. And I didn't want anything to happen to him or his family, even Mm. though he is a philandering jerk. But still, he doesn't deserve what's coming to him. To smash the picture, you cut it and the blood comes out. I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) And then he takes the blowtorch out of nowhere. And you're like, what? what more can we do? And then the weirdo with the mustache is just sitting there like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah eyes wide like waiting it's like yeah, let's calm down here people and then stings like you shouldn't have burned the desk that's where you took it too far <laughs> yeah. and then all his people jump out and they got the jump on him it's pretty awesome and then sting sells sean his car for a pound and then they break his forearm and a break that sounds nice so we'll be right back after this Ah, feeding. Everyone's got to do it, even vampires. But if you aren't a vampire, or a baby, or a baby vampire, then sometimes eating can become so repetitive and boring. Which is where Marshall's Hot Sauce comes in. Liven up any meal with those small batch sauces made from only the freshest ingredients. From the sweet, mild heat of smoked habanero barbecue, to the addictive Serrano ginger lemongrass, or even my two personal favorites, habanero carrot curry and bird's eye basil. In fact, Marshall's Hot Sauce even has a new line of seasonings, including an incredible barbecue rub, a chicken marinade, and even a volcano sparkle that a vampire could eat. (laughs) Uh, The best part is that you can enter VHS Podcast at checkout for 20% off. That's right, liven up those meals and wake up those undead taste buds at marshallshotsauce.com. That's marshalls, H-A-U-T-E, sauce.com. And enter VHS Podcast for 20% off. And now, back to the show. And we're back, and the movie is back at the party, and Melanie squeezes a man's testicles. Hard. Really hard. (laughs) Melanie quits the Ouija bar and breaks plates, and then Sean and Melanie go with the band to hang with Polish people. That happened. (laughs) That was a little... I don't understand the role of his friend Andre here. Yeah. I understand there needs to be some sort of emotional hook, Mm -hmm. because we'll get there what happens to him. But that part was a little, why are we here? I don't understand it. It wasn't my favorite, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a weird section of the film, and there's no subtitles for a lot of it, which is intentional. I don't know what's happening. By this point of the film, I'm so absorbed in this area, in this weird story and trying to figure out what's happening, that it works for me, but it's like, it is kind of weird, kind of pops you out in a way. It's raining, there's people chasing after Sean and Melanie, but we don't know that until they are told that they have a flat tire, so he gets out, and then he gets beat up, and Melanie claws a man's face, and then Sean pulls a gun and kills someone off camera. I think that's another one of the scenes that you can't really hear what they're saying to each other. It's like when we're talking about the music when oh, it yeah. takes over. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they're saying when they're yelling and screaming, because it's like the intensity of the music and the rain, and it's happening on the side of this hill it's just so intense yeah. but i had no idea what they were yelling or anything Same, yeah. but i didn't think you needed to yeah i agree tommy's told by his assistant that things didn't go well and he takes it like a champ melanie and sean check into a hotel under the cover that he's a musician and sean's in the bathtub showing those beans if you want to find that scene 
They, <laughs> bean bath, everybody. The bean bath. They rest, and next we get this amazing scene. It's a wide master tracking shot of Sting and Tommy Lee on the bridge. There's no cuts. It's shot at dawn. I love this scene. It's where I jumped off off the couch because now this is all digital. People don't realize this could really be done and it's done in this. And Mike lied to Tommy Lee because he thought it was going to be a two shot with all these close ups and he just shot it wide. And I think it's the smartest choice. Yeah, it's really breathtaking. Again, like so many breathtaking moments in this movie, but this is one between these two powerhouses. And of course, we don't think of Sting as an actor. Right. And he's not the greatest, but I think Sting's a fine actor. He's totally fine and goes toe to toe with one of the American giants here. And it's great to watch. Yeah. And Mike kept telling Sting, play it down, play it low energy. And I think that's what we see from Sting. But I think that feels realistic rather than seeing this like heightened, the British guy's got to stand up against, you know, it, I don't know. It's really wonderful. Next, we see an American Week parade. It's shot so beautifully. Again, I just feel like I get when it's Roger Deakins, I feel repetitive and redundant at every shot, but it's a treat. I loved the parade, and I um, so didn't good. notice that there was an Oregon flag was waving. <laughs> yeah, I was like, out. oh, wow, that's so cool. Really? Yeah, it was the third flag when they're walking in the front of the parade with huh. the Oregon yeah. flag. So and this, another cool. section where there's so much crosscut because you have them in the bedroom hooking up, even though they're all beat up, and then you yeah. have the parade happening, and it's like, oh. It's so good. And then we learn that Melanie once worked for Sting. And then we see Sting's playing the stand-up bass, which means it's time for us to play a game. Ooh. Yes. Uh, Anthony, are you ready to play Mingus, Stingus, or Dingus? That's right. These are, <laughs> are things attributed to either the legendary jazz musician Charlie Mingus, a celebrity Dingus, or Sting, the singer from a band that N.W.A. hated, The Police. The Police! Do you get it? Yeah, I get it. Right there. Okay. I was like, why did NWA yeah. sing? But I get it. Okay. Can you imagine, though, hearing that song from NWA and being yeah. like, what did they have? Every breath you take, it's creepy, but so angry. <laughs> Number one. So your choices are Mingus, Celebrity Dingus, or Stingus, the singer from the band The Police. <laughs> Number, Mingus. Number one. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Well, that's Charlie Mingus. Yeah, that's a Charlie Mingus jam. Number two, arrested for playing the bongos at 3 a.m. naked while another naked man clapped along. I mean... Mingus, dingus, or stingus? <laughs> is it stingus being a dingus? <laughs> sounds, I'm saying stingus. That's, that's a good guess. Sarah, do you want to guess on this one too? I'm going to say celebrity dingus. It is a celebrity dingus. It's Matthew McConaughey was arrested mm. for this. Oh, duh. How could you not <laughs> know that? Jeez. I mean, that really sounds like something yeah. that weirdo would do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Number three. Once said they had tantric sex for seven hours, only to later clarify that includes dinner and a movie. Stingus. Yes, yeah, Stingus, that is correct. He's totally into tantric sex. <laughs> yes. Number four, egg to mansion. Stingus, dingus, or mingus? Um, that's a celebrity dingus, I think. <laughs> yes. Justin Bieber egg to mansion and had to pay $80,000 for egg damages. That's oh, too much beef. money. <laughs> Why $80,000? Just no, what cause. the heck? Just because. Because he had it? Yeah, probably. I mean, he's got a lot of more than that, I think. <laughs> He's bankrupt now because of that, didn't you hear? Oh, it's all he couldn't stop egging mansions. Once you stop, it's an addiction. Yeah, an egg addiction. Okay. I go to AA. He goes to egg A. Egg A. <laughs> wow, we are super dad tonight. Yeah, aren't we? We're, all, uh, we're all very dad jokes. I get so much joy from it. Um, 
I had to have a kid just so people would be like, these are dad jokes. Because before they're just like, why do you sound like this? I will always <laughs> laugh at the dad jokes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here for it. Number five, due to a poor education, could not read musical notation and quickly enough, that is, to join the local youth orchestra, which had a serious impact on their early musical experiences, leaving them feeling ostracized from the classical music world. Charles Mingus. That is right. It's Charles Mingus. What if I was like, Matthew McConaughey? Uh, <laughs> He's back. <laughs> number six, recorded an album with Shaggy. Recorded an album with Shaggy. Is it Stingus? Stingus. What? So I knew this one only because Dirk found it and played it for me. And I was like, oh, this no. isn't real. I saw this on iTunes. I knew nothing about it. And it's for me. I fell off the couch laughing because it is... <laughs> The vocal range of Sting, and then like Mr. Lava Lava comes in, and I was just like, "What is this?" So I texted my friend Ian, who works on the Late Late Show, and he's the head writer there. And he was like, "Yeah, they made an album. They were just on the Late Late Show." And I was like, "My brain could not make sense of it. It was like if Carrot Top won an Oscar. It was just so insane to me." And so anyone that wants to, please look that up. It's the weirdest contrasting of sounds. Is this a recent thing? It's the last five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm offended. Yeah. The thing is wait, better than this. Wait Come on. till you hear it. It's mind boggling. <laughs> so, the way that they met was Shaggy just walked on stage while Sting was playing Roxanne, and Sting thought he was Sean Paul, so performs a song with Shaggy, and then they got along. That's the story. They become buds. Oh my gosh, it's so oh, weird. Beautiful. Yeah. Number seven licked a bunch of donuts in a donut shop and said, I hate America. Stingus Dingus or Dingus. Celebrity Dingus. <laughs> Correct. Ariana Grande did this in a video that went viral. Number eight. Real name is Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, but got their nickname from wearing a black and yellow striped sweater a lot. Oh, that sounds like... <laughs> it's obviously Stingus. <laughs> it's Stingus. That's his origin story. Wait, That's I, it. Thought, yeah. I thought his name was Sting Smith. <laughs> Sting Smith. It's Stink Stinkson, actually. <laughs> Stink Stinkson. <laughs> number, number eight. Won an award from the Guggenheim in 1971. From the Guggenheim? Yeah, Stingus, Dingus, or Mingus? Mingus, you're correct. It's the jazz legend, Charles Mingus. Oh. And number ten. This is the final one. In 1977, starred in a Wrigley gum ad directed by Ridley Scott, which required everyone to bleach their hair blonde, resulting in the band's signature look. Stingus. Stingus. Yes. Ridley Scott directed the band The Police in a Wrigley's gum ad. Ooh. Mm -hmm. There you go, people. Back in the movie, Melanie arrives and we get a close-up on the front of her car. Uh, I love this car. In her apartment, there are two bags and Tommy Lee's waiting for her. Katie, Katie, Katie. I don't have to tell you what kind of trouble you're in, do I? You're a smart girl. You can figure it out for yourself. What's-his-name is still singing soprano. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that. And you got yourself an Irish boyfriend. You love him, don't you? Don't you? Yes. Well, then. You want to keep him alive, don't you? So get him out of town. Take you, Brendan, and 
in the red car and drive to London tonight. There are two tickets to New York and on to Minneapolis, St. Paul. In your name, at the TWA desk. Use those tickets, Katie. We see the car again and Sting at the club. We get more crosscuts. He's told that she and Sean need to go to the plane. The band performs. It's a furious performance. It's one of my favorite performances in the film. So great. I wrote, Jazz, what the fuck? Because I just was like, I can't tell what's happening. It's so great. They're all just firing on all cylinders. I mean, honest to God, this is on a different level because the piano player sits down and he's playing this very smooth and slower, very melodic tinkling on the piano, if you will. But then all of a sudden, everybody jumps in and the baritone sax player, it sounds like he's blowing two notes at a time where some players can actually do that. And it just sounds the coolest. And even though it sounds insane and might give somebody heart palpitations, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. We play a lot of jazz in our house because there's a station where there's just no commercials. So jazz won by default from all other music. Also, it's usually 90% instrumental, I'd Mm -hmm. say. There's not a lot of vocal tracks. So you can write to it. You can clean just on in the background so that you don't just hear our child wailing. (laughs) 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 Whatever insane thing she's shouting about. Honey, be quiet. We're listening to Charles Mingus. Yeah, she had a friend over and her friend was like, why don't you play songs with words in them? We're like, this is what we play in between records, but okay. (laughs) All right. Well, Melanie and Sean realize that they've been duped, and Melanie pulls a U-turn in the film. She really does this stunt. They shot it pretty far away, so you can't tell, but it's her and Sean Bean who was half asleep at the time and didn't know she was about to do it. (laughs) So, yeah, so it's really amazing. If you look close, his expression is a pure shock. Sean realizes they're too late, and then their car does explode. Sean raises a gun at Tommy. Tommy Lee would not look at Sean Bean in the scene, and the director kept saying, you need to look at him, and Tommy Lee said, I wouldn't look at him, I'm too proud. And they said, you've got to look at him, and they kept shooting it, and in the scene, he lights a cigar. So if you remember my Havana (laughs) cigar story from the beginning of the film, he lights the cigar, takes a puff, would mess it up, throw it in the gutter, and then demand another cigar for the next shot by putting his hand out and saying, cigar. And so they'd gone through all of the Havana cigars that they got for him because they didn't foresee this happening. So the props people were taking cigars out of the gutter and drying them off and cutting the ends off and then giving them back to Tommy Lee. So, and not even to be cruel, they just had to finish the shot. But I do love the story of someone being so insufferable and having to smoke gutter cigars. (laughs) what you get tommy lee just you just gotta be nice to people i don't see why it's so difficult anyway it's a gorgeous ending and holy smokes that's the end of stormy monday what a movie that i had never heard of yes and it'll probably be my discovery of march top discovery of march and so far is on my discovery list top 10 for the year it is early yeah But it's just, it's very unique in that you don't get lots of gunfire and Mm -hmm. big booms. We do get one big boom. We do. And they really Um, blew that car up. They weren't going to be allowed to do it, but the fire person turned out to be the director's neighbor. (laughs) So he was like, yeah, you could blow a car up. I don't have any problem with it. But the movie company, the town, everybody else was like, I don't think so. This guy's going to stop it. And he's just like, yeah, go for it. Here's my question is that a car bomb goes off within a block of the club right right? 
and the band is raging on and the crowd, they're loving it. They're standing ovations. And then the final shot is the three of them, Stingus and Sean's Beans. Yes. And then uh, <laughs> Griffith. Griffith. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Melanie. Anyways, the crowd's cheering. This car bomb has gone off. A car exploded. People are dead. Sirens wailing. But that's the power of jazz. Nobody yeah, cares. Right. Yeah, they, they just want to hear the music. They just go right back in. They're yeah. just like, okay, let's go back in. They the do all just go right back <laughs> they in. Do. Nobody stands around to see. I mean, I get that the people in the car blew up. There's nothing you could do. But in like, this small town. You would still stand around as like the ambulance yeah. comes. You wouldn't just be like, okay, more jazz. Huh? Or maybe you would. Maybe, maybe they're just like, ah, another car bomb. Another yeah. Tuesday, right. another car bomb. There we go. Sting's going to play Tuesday. bass. <laughs> Go see it. The final song is BB King. Uh, he recorded this song from Earl Hines from 1942. He was a friend of Earl's, and when he went to record this, Sting knew this was going to happen, so he went with Mike to see the recording of the song. And BB oh. King said, "How do you want me to play it? You know, for the film." And Mike didn't know what to say, so BB King handed the director Lucille, and he's standing there holding BB King's guitar to show him how to play a song. And Mike was just like, "I couldn't even do it. I just handed it back to him, and I was like, I'm happy with what you do." <laughs> like, yeah, so that, call, I'm sorry, buddy, Mr. King, call. just play the music. Yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> Stephen King being like, "What do you want to write?" and then handing you his acoustic guitar. Okay, no, that's not the whole metaphor. That's not right. <laughs> Final thoughts. Anything you want to say in closing before we move on to final questions? Watch this movie, man. It's so beautiful. It's such a relief that you enjoyed this because I've heard you not like things on your podcast. I was like, (laughs) oh man, I really hope. I'm okay with having differing opinions, but it's really different when you get to say, let's do this movie and the person genuinely enjoys it. So that's that's really awesome. I'm just as relieved as you because I don't like coming on a podcast and being like, (laughs) actually, this movie kind of sucks. Right. No, actually, this movie actually rules hard. So Mm -hmm. Awesome. Sarah, do you have any final thoughts for the film? No, I just hope people watch it. I think it was a totally random, mysterious find. You brought it into our world, so thank you. I brought it into the world, and I feel proud of it. I'm excited. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And now we move on to final questions. These are questions just about you, Anthony. What is a good day like for you as a jazz musician? There was a time where I was playing full time Mm -hmm. and I had a regular gig at this steakhouse and it was a real mess. I didn't like playing there, but I was getting paid a lot of money. I was playing five nights a week and like, you know, having two consecutive nights off. So I had a sort of weekend. And so that was really nice when I didn't have to hustle gigs. Mm -hmm. When you have a steady gig, just like having a regular job where you don't really have to worry about your paycheck. So that was always a good day because then I could, during the day, I could write music. I could sleep, you know, I could (laughs) practice whatever. And then at night go to the club and play. And that would be a perfect day for me. Okay. And what would be a bad day? Bad day would be when... The club. Well, okay, I'll tell you a story here. So this steakhouse that I was playing at, the piano player whose gig it was, who had hired me, mm-hmm. was gone for the weekend. And so I was leading the band, and which meant I had to go get the checks for the guys. And so I had to go talk to the manager, and it was really busy. I've worked in restaurants. I understand restaurant guys care about the restaurant, and that's it. But that wasn't me at that point. I wanted my money. Other guys were depending on me. And so I waited for an hour. The two other guys playing with me 
said, okay, just drop off the checks tomorrow, bring them over. I was like, okay, I'm sorry about this. So I waited another half hour. And finally I lost my temper and I yelled, which I have hardly done ever in my entire life, but I yelled at the manager and he grabbed me and pulled me outside and opened his coat. He was packing, he had a gun and he said, come back tomorrow for your money. And I was like, give me my money now. And one of the guys, one of the office people ran out with the checks. That was a bad day. Needless to say, I was fired from that gig. I didn't want to go back there anyways. Yeah, no. Funny story is the next week, that dude shot himself in the leg in the restaurant bathroom (laughs) and was arrested for, it was an illegal weapon. So neener, neener, but still, (laughs) it was really scary. (laughs) Yeah, I've never had that happen in my life. I would not enjoy that. I was like, "Uh, is playing music really worth this? I don't know. But it is that way when I worked in the jazz bar, it is that way where the bar is supposed to pay you Mm. and they are too busy because they're serving people. And usually when the music is over is when people are like drinking more and Mm. they're up at the bar wanting drinks and the bartenders and the managers are all focusing on that. And so I have seen people have to wait around for their money and no other job is like that. You usually get paid a different time but if you're like playing in this bar you have to wait there and you have to get paid right then which means sometimes you have to stay until four o'clock in the morning while you wait for people to be done with their nonsense you know <laughs> after that i demanded my money on top yeah up front before i even started playing and i always apologized to whoever was leading the band but i was like i need my money now because i can't wait around all night right yeah because a lot of people have to go work their day job in the morning exactly well, at least that's how the place i worked they all had regular yeah. jobs i mean they, they played music at night but that was more just extra but they still right. needed that money yeah yeah any advice for someone interested in jazz say there's musicians listening that haven't gotten involved in jazz the best advice i ever got was just listen 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 to as much music as you can whatever type of music you want to listen to but if we're talking jazz listen to bix Beaterbeck, to newer guys joshua redmond whatever listen to everything you can and become a sponge and practice if you have the time practice eight hours a day that's what i got up to when i was playing full-time I'd practice for eight hours a day because I wanted to be the best. And Mm. if you want to be the best, you have to devote that much time to it. It's listening to as much music as you can. It's playing as much as you can. And then don't be afraid of that hustle. And it doesn't matter if you're in New York City or Omaha, Nebraska or Portland. You need to hustle. You need to go sit in on sessions whenever you can. There's an open jam session at least five nights a week in your city. You need to go sit in, get to know people. It's as simple as that. Listen and play. There it is. Perfect. We've reached the final question, and it's my favorite question. Anthony, what are your dreams like? My dreams. Nowadays, uh, it is... I just want to wake up. (laughs) (laughs) My dreams, it's always whatever I'm reading... We watch a lot of movies, right? And so for a long time, it was, I've sort of always inserted myself into that. But now I go to bed having, you know, read 20 or 30 pages and whatever happened. It's like when I read my Star Wars novels, I'm in Star Wars, baby. And it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Are you planning on going to the Disneyland Star Wars attractions? We're going to wait another year, but yes. Cool. That hotel that is it in Florida that they opened up? That sounds like a real freaking nightmare. Yeah, I don't think that Uh, that's great, but I have a friend who loves Star Wars and he went on the new attractions and he said it was unbelievable the the level of everything they did. I'm not one of those guys, but I sure like to 
to pretend. Yeah. I think it's you fun know. with your kids. If your kids are oh into that gosh. kind of stuff, so, seeing their yeah. faces when they're like, like his son asked him if it was real when they were on one of the rides because there's actors and stuff doing the stuff, yeah. you know. So that's pretty awesome. There it is. We reached the end of the podcast. Anthony, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Once again, Anthony's podcast is Cult Movies Podcast. You can find it wherever you podcast. True. Yes, you can. A.K. Donnelly on Twitter. Yeah, and Instagram, yeah. And Instagram. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me back, man. Yeah, you're the jazziest. As always, I'm Dirk Marshall, and this has been another jazzy episode of VHS.